0: Welcome to Talent Management Truths. I'm your host, Lisa Mitchell. I'm a talent management thought partner and results coach, wife, and mom. Talent management leaders are hungry to learn from their peers and want to hear about real life talent initiatives. This podcast is for and by talent management leaders. My guests and I dig into successes, challenges, and lessons learned from a very practical, not theoretical point of view you'll discover important insights about how to elevate your confidence and amplify your influence in a role known for being caught in the organizational middle. I'm thrilled to have you listening. So let's get going and hear the truth about talent management today. What's an example of an online system, process, or tool you've used that's caused you frustration in the past? Perhaps it was a bank machine, or an online purchase website, or a work process with a million handoffs and approvals. Chances are, my guest today did not work on the user experience or UX design aspect of those projects. My guest is Paul Eisen, a user experience expert and consultant. He holds a doctorate degree in human factors and has years of broad cross-industry experience. After honing his skills in various companies, including some big names like IBM, CIBC, and one of the big four consulting firms, Paul now consults with various clients to help them transform their customer and user experiences. As you'll hear in the episode, Paul and I go way back. He is someone I count as a mentor and a friend, and I'm so grateful for this conversation. I learned so much, and I know you will too. Enjoy. Hello and welcome back to Talent Management Truths. I'm your host, Lisa Mitchell, and today I'm joined by an old friend and mentor of mine, Paul Eisen. Welcome to the show, Paul.
1: Hey, Lisa. Thanks for inviting me.
0: My pleasure. So I thought it would be a good place to start to to have you explain to me and the audience a little bit about your background, what you do.
1: So I considered one of those hardcore UX people. That is, I have specialized in and as a practitioner in this domain for my entire career. So user and experience. Of user experience, exactly. This started with a deep education and a doctorate in how humans interact with technology and systems and solutions and through a human factors background. And then immediately into a practitioner state where we were looking at how humans interact with technology and systems. I did stints in house with IBM and with CIBC where we're developing in house products and solutions and and processes, as well as spend a lot of my time consulting in that area. And it's really about understanding what do end users value Mm -hmm. and do that through a course of research and then establishing a strategy for how can a solution then deliver that value. And then finally you get into the execution which is the conceptual design and the detailed design. And of course, all along the way, one of the core principles is engaging your end user community. And that's what we really mean by being human-centered. It's the empathy that we're able to uncover in order to be solving problems that are really meaningful in a way that is valuable to end users.
0: Empathy we can uncover. Okay, interesting. So could you share with us a little bit, like right now you are working... On your own, you have your own firm where you provide user experience consulting to firms. What's an example of, of a project where you've been brought in to, to bring that UX rigor?
1: This one I'll, I'll mention is kind of interesting and it was particularly engaging for me because it was a bit of a different space. And I was working for a while with a health insurer. In the u.s and with the introduction of the affordable care act in 2012 suddenly there are about 60 million somewhat american citizens who had access to health insurance that prior to this they didn't and that actually introduced massive gap in knowledge between the processes and products and services that are available for them And their ability to conceptualize those and actually take advantage of them. And there's this whole space of health insurance literacy that I was spending some time on trying to really uncover, establish an understanding between of the gap between the product and capabilities available and people's ability to understand, choose insurance and use insurance. And then establish some opportunities for how do we actually close that gap? So that's a strategy kind of engagement that I was involved in. And then uh, out of that, we spawned some individual initiatives looking for areas to kind of educate people in a sort of a just in time fashion so that they can understand the importance of making certain choices and then provide some guidance for how to make those choices in a way which best suits them and avoids classic biases that we all have that make it difficult for us to choose, kind of in that behavioral economics and behavioral science capabilities that we have, or those principles at least that underlie some of our decision-making.
0: Fascinating. So did the, the, did these other initiatives that were spawned, I love that word, it sounds like my 15-year-old who's spawning things in his video games all the time. But anyways, with any of those initiatives, did, did it extend to sort of technology solutions? It, it did, eh?
1: Process, maybe communications, technology, the experience itself. When we talk about user experience, we're really thinking about all of the various channels and touch points where one is interacting with a, an organization. So we we'll want to be able to think broadly about that. We think of often customer experience as kind of the full sum total of your sense of interacting with an organization. And then the UX side is more about the technology, but really you can't separate the two when you're creating a solution.
0: Yeah, so what it brings up for me, and I'm thinking about, you know, in my experience many times it's it's been about how do we bring in systems thinking, right? So if we're trying to create transformation within an organization, how do we embed and thread the language, the purpose, the principles, so that everybody over time is on the same page and is able to to buy in and, and execute on whatever the desired transformation is, make it happen together. So I know it's not exactly the same, but I sort of see a little bit of a, a connection there, right? This systems thinking, because you said, you know, you're trying to look at any process, technology, communication, where a user's interacting with something, like you're, cons- you're trying to anticipate, how are they going to intuit their next step, for instance?
1: Is that it's, right? It, it's directly, absolutely. It's directly connected. And you think because there's a an area that we talk about called service design. And really it's not only creating that experience on the front end, but it's looking at all the layers of the system that are servicing, and establishing, rendering that experience so that it's effective. And you've got your front stage and your backstage and the sort of components, both human and machine that are contributing to the experience. And so there's a blueprint that one will often create to just try and understand. It might start with, we think of customer journey and laying out the components of customer journey and then layer on top of that, those elements of the system that service that journey and you really have kind of a systems view.
0: Yes, it's so interesting. So, and I should share with the audience like how you and I know each other. So we work together and, and this is where we're going to date ourselves, uh, late 90s. And I was a one woman training machine in my organization and subsidiary of one of the big banks and was seconded to a special project where we were trying to take, it was a large call center and back office operations. And they were all on green screen using kickspace technology, really outdated even then. And, And it was about, it was called the workstation capability project. And I don't know who came up with that, but we were laughing earlier in the green room. It eventually got renamed Odyssey, Project Odyssey. But we were trying to redesign the experience first of the CSRs, the customer service reps. We wanted to make it easier for them to flow through the many screens. Originally, it was going to have a, a GUI interface, somewhere of a web-based type of interface. But this was the 90s. It, that eventually got kibosh due to budgeting and so on. But it was, it, the screens were so confusing. It was like you just knew you had to press F4 and then look for some fields that had nothing to do with what you thought you were looking for. You had to learn these strange field labels that didn't match the the information you were searching for. So it was renaming field labels. It was setting them up in a different flow across the screens so that typical calls and inquiries that would come in would actually map more intuitively to what the customer service rep was seeing online to get that information more quickly, more efficiently, less frustration, and also less training. So I was brought in as the learning project lead to represent learning and and also because I was going to be responsible for rolling this out eventually, right, for training people on it. So it was sort of representing the needs of, of the learners and so forth. So, Paul, you had come in as part of almost a SWAT team that the bank had at the time to help us with this overall design. And when I think about that, like, you, you know, use the term when we were speaking earlier, it was pioneering days. Right. When all this kind of thing was, it was a bit new. Can you elaborate on what you mean by pioneering days and how our experience back then? It's what does it look like now in the landscape of
1: user experience? Sure. It's interesting when you think about the user experience, often you're thinking about that point of connection with the screen. And so we think about the design of the screen and the user interface and the widgets and the communication there. And that's, of course, the component and, and an important component. IBM created this model they called the iceberg model. And their analogy was that that screen is really just the tip of the iceberg. But the elements that actually influence the user experience go much deeper and broader, and they're sitting underneath the surface. You need to think a little more deeply about that. And so as you recalled earlier when we were discussing this, Lisa, the processes themselves, the structures and the objects and the concepts, the way people think of their work and of the of systems that they're interacting with, we need to be able to design those to match that mental model. And that underlies then what gets rendered on the screen itself. And so that was pioneering thinking that these decisions that establish what are the objects that we're creating, what are the functions and the processes and how does that work? Typically that was Executed by process designers and and developers prior to any engagement with someone who would think about the front end screen. At all. Oh
0: go that that hence those weird labels. Like it was like it would say var. And you're like, What's var? But somebody would say to you, "Oh, that's the variable interest rate." You know, but but like <laughs> there was a lot of training that had to be associated with yeah. it. So part of this project too was developing EPSS, which for some listeners you'll remember is Electronic Performance Support, or you know, some of you would know Robo Help, you know, which eventually came along and was sort of like an overlay you could buy to put on top of your system or we actually ended up developing knowledge base in Lotus Notes. It was a custom Lotus Notes kind of build. So it wasn't completely contextual. So somebody could click on a question mark on screen like you see a lot in web, you know, interfaces now, but it was like a separate database you would pull up where service or or back office processors could go. But anyways, it was kind of, the concept though was, To make it just in time, right? And to anticipate the questions, to have actually done research, to find out what those will be so that you can mitigate, like be ready for those.
1: That's right. And one of the things that we've learned over the years is that when we're trying to support people's performance, we have to be thoughtful about what we train on. So for example, rather than providing acronyms, codes, and things that might suit a highly proficient, very experienced user, recognizing that we have generally high turnover in call centers and other types of work environments. We want to be able to kind of balance the understandability of our user interface directly versus the kind of support and tips that we provide in order to help their performance there. And I think the rule of thumb that we can think of as educators and trainers of workplace uh, employees is that we need to help employees appreciate the types of things that they can do with the system and the value of that in other words to motivate them to want to engage and then once they engage we should let good design speak for itself and enable the mechanics of interaction to flow naturally rather than feel that we have to train the mechanics of interaction and there are great design patterns and libraries and conventions that we've developed and, and fine-tuned over the past three decades to make that much more available.
0: The whole thing is so, so fascinating to me. So something that you you were mentioning to me earlier was this about the concept of of literacy and how it's a strong predictor of of one's ability to succeed. I'm hoping you could elaborate a little bit on what what that means.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So in this example that we were just talking about in the health insurance space, there's been research to uncover some of the sources of these performance gaps. And one of the greatest indicators of success is actually what's referred to as self-efficacy, one's confidence in one's ability to succeed. That alone will spur internal motivation and effort. And that is a, a strong predictor of success. And so that's an area that we want to really touch upon and focus on. And so how does that render in design? It's by reinforcing one's effective decisions, by providing feedback on decisions and identifying areas that were successful in areas where there's opportunities to, to behave in a different way, in a positive kind of constructive reinforcement way.
0: So let's let's really take that down into the weeds then, when we look at the whole health insurance case study, so to speak, right? So you've got oh. all of these Americans who now all of a sudden can access healthcare and and they have they don't know what they don't know, right? And so there's yes. all these new products available. You you're helping the I don't know if it was the industry or the company look at well what's the gap between what we're going to be offering or have here to support and and what people know or need to learn and how they might use it. So what's a practical kind of boots on the ground example of how your work in this space would have facilitated somebody new, you know, making that purchase for
1: the very first time. Well, let's start with why should people care? With prior research and, and observation, we see that a lot of people just simply will make suboptimal choices. They won't take the time to think through it. People will spend Get the number exactly, 14, 15 hours researching an automobile before they purchase it. Usually three to five hours researching a mobile phone, which costs a fraction of what health insurance costs. Right. Yet, often people will have an expectation that when they're selecting a health insurance plan and making the choices within that, that 20 minutes or half an hour should be good enough. And there's a ton of evidence that people are making suboptimal choices, one. So what's the impact of that? Well, there's research that also identifies that health outcomes are worse, that your actual life expectancy can be lower because people are avoiding, they're choosing a plan which ends up having them pay a lot out of pocket and they're avoiding the kind of preventive health care that's required in order to maintain longevity. And for that privilege, they end up paying more than they would otherwise. Wild. So that's.
0: Well, how, so how do you, how do you protect them from themselves from making these suboptimal choices, which sounds really dystopian?
1: Yeah. It's a, it's about finding those right moments and right mechanisms to educate. Just as an example, social proofing, which is an effective technique to illustrate what people who are peers of theirs, peers by location, by education status, by health status, or by age just as examples, what kinds of choices they're making and how those outcomes are happening. And so little vignettes of stories, just brief paragraphs even, or just kind of sometimes bite-sized bites can be effective in motivating somebody to say, hey, this might make sense for me too.
0: Do you mean, so I'm going to marketing, like in terms of getting the message out, is that marketing specifically, or even in the enrollment process when somebody's applying for insurance?
1: Yes, yes and yes. Okay. Okay, you can take it down to then the individual choices. There's kind of, why should you even pay attention? And then now that you're paying attention, why should you spend time thinking about this question or set of options that we're presenting in front of you right now? Another technique is just really kind of reflecting on how you're protecting yourself and your family. So when you kind of have people take a moment to think about who they're covering and what their current situation is, that's a way of kind of emotionally reinforcing the importance.
0: That empathy piece, right? With those the, the, the you've been centered. Okay, okay. So, and and all of this really, you know, ties so much to this concept of well, needs assessment. First of all, you know, which is for anybody who's who's leading talent, right? Whether you're in HR or OD or learning and so on, you know, you're thinking about well, what's the need? There's the prescribed need, and then there's what's actually going on, and and, and how do we how do we affect change? It's change management. There's a whole yeah. bunch of that here. And good design. There's, you know, when you somebody comes into a learning event, whether that be a 15-minute piece or a week long, you know, how do you hook them? How do you create the the with them? What's in it for me and and why should they care, as you put it? So that's... so that's sort of my read on how these two domains or disciplines can can intersect a little bit. Well, how would you extrapolate? To the training world, to the learning, the growth and development world, the the you know user experience principles.
1: Yeah, that's a big topic, but just is it? Of... <laughs> can we cover
0: it in ten minutes? No kidding. No, just 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 give us tip of the iceberg. It's okay.
1: Absolutely. At the surface, there's kind of first of all that component about really providing guidance around what is appropriate to provide as context and background in order to understand. I would value interacting with a tool, for example, and then there's the design mechanics to try and really eliminate any kind of education about how to use the interface. And really, the better the design is, the the, the fewer band-aids that you were required in order to help people understand. Don't forget to submit this after you filled it out. You see that kind of thing as an example right? yeah. where that shouldn't be something you need to instruct me to do. I should, it should be a clear status in front of me about that.
0: So I hope
1: to that. that too. I just ran into that recently. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, we could endlessly talk about th- those opportunities. And then there's learning management systems itself. And as you're aware, there's kind of a whole set of design principles of, around that and supporting people's learning capability and reinforcing, you know, providing kind of an upfront expectation. So the learning principles that get embedded and you want to then render those learning principles effectively in your, in your interactions as well. And there's kind of an underlying principle, which is always leave the end user in control. And so although you have an agenda in order to provide a curriculum with expected learning outcomes, and you want to be able to have your learners experience that in a way which suits their learning style and their learning interests and their desire for repetition and review, et cetera.
0: Yeah, I, I, I like that phrase, always leave the end user in control, you know, that I think that it, it makes me think of, you know, an adult education doing my diploma all these years ago. And, and, and it was this whole concept of these are adults, right? So they need to feel in control and treated as equals, you know, so it's, that's the difference between pedagogy and, and andragogy, right? So how do you, how do you respect, to demonstrate that respect of what they already bring to the table, right? And allow them to feel a sense of agency and control so that's coming into play here. So I I I want to actually talk about some other funny examples actually. Do you have any others of where you've seen something and you're like, "Oh my god, like that should be more obvious or intuitive." Because I think it could be illustrative for people listening about, "Oh, do we have processes or 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 something embedded in our systems that 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 might be something similar to that?" Reminders that could be, you know, removed like, "Don't forget to submit this."
1: So some of the experience implications that I've talked about can be pretty profound. But when you ask this question, what comes to mind is it's kind of a little bit of a nitpicky thing, but i mention it because it's so pervasive and it's just one of those things that we don't realize always makes us stop and think for a second. And then when you add up all of the nitpicky things that we run across in this world, we spend a lot of seconds stopping and thinking about what do I do here? And the example that I'm thinking of here is just a consumer example when you say log on to an online banking experience or any kind of other travel site or something where there's an account and you need to authenticate and there's that checkbox that says remember me and you checked it the first time because you see your name already pre-filled there or your id pre-filled there but the checkbox is sitting there and it's not checked well, what do you do? What does that mean? Do I have to check it every time I, log well, again, I have to say, remember me again? Well, no, you don't. Well, then what if I decide I don't want you to remember me anymore? What do I do? I've got an unchecked checkbox here. There's no way to do that. And this is something which is bizarrely almost now that I think other sites look at, well, what are the big banks doing? And well, we they better say, remember me. Well, because I've
0: actually, that's so interesting because I'm thinking, have I thought about that? I actually have, because I'm like, is it cookie thing that it's no longer checked or like, like, cause I cleared my cash or I'd like, uh, you know, like, and I'm wasting
1: brain cells on this, so that, right? Yeah. You're there to try and transact. You're not there to understand the design. No, it's there because somebody decided that the default should be unchecked as opposed to check that the correct solution is you check it by default. Cause that's what I said last time. And if I decide I don't want you to remember me anymore, I'll simply uncheck it. Again, it feels very trivial. It's just second, but it's multiply that. And then, of course, that's just one microcosm of of the other opportunities that exist.
0: So interesting. So it it makes me think about in meeting design or program design about, you know, looking at what's almost like this idea of, Deliberate removal. Like, is there something here that really, you know, we think it makes sense because it's sort of the default of how we've always done it? But maybe it doesn't make sense, really. And is it slowing us down? What needs to come out here?
1: Yes, and you know, what's uh, something that I would be remiss not to emphasize is that we have all of these design patterns and conventions and and underlying principles of cognitive psychology and interaction design that we can apply to make design decisions. But nothing beats the user feedback that and the, the insights that we gathered through that. And so a keen researcher will be able to observe the hesitation mm. and probe on it because it's something that's very subtle and, and you wouldn't necessarily have somebody self-report, oh gee, I had to stop and think for a second about this checkbox. So that's, you know, we, there's different techniques for gathering feedback and some are unmoderated and some are moderated, but this is something that we have to keep in mind that as we are going through the process of identifying what's important, creating a concept for a solution, and then refining that concept, that we need to be cross-checking this with the end-user community and course-correcting our, our set of assumptions.
0: Yeah, it's really iterative, right? You know, working with users—it's that. You know, I had a flashback when you were speaking. I thought, "Oh my god!" And going all all those years back to sitting beside a CSR and watching them attempt to use our knowledge base and our new screen flow in beta or whatever it was called, right? So in user acceptance testing and making notes and watching like where they were getting stuck and everything. I, I'd forgotten all about that, but I remember doing that. Interesting. You probably taught me how. So it, the, the other thing that, that you know I was I was sort of smiling about earlier when you were talking is this idea of talent management learning, if we're speaking about learning, organizational design. Organizational effectiveness—it's—it's way more than just the learning process, right? How someone learns—it's how they get feedback on the job, how they interact with processes, how processes are designed for them to make it easy, right, and and to make them more efficient and so on. So there's there's a whole lot of intersection here. I was thinking about Apple, so I'm a real Apple fan, and you may not be. Some people hate them because they think they're too expensive and everything. But what I love about them and my family does is there's. their products are so intuitive and they're so connected. So for me, I don't want to have to remember to back up. I take a lot of, of photographs, like a lot. Okay. And, and I don't want to have to remember to back those things up and so on. I like that, you know, if I take a picture on my phone that it shows up on my MacBook, then I have it, right? And 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 I can look at them and organize them and so on. And that there's the little click I can get information on. Now, the other day they they gave me a new update and it was telling me I looked at a picture of my dog and it said oh there's info and this little funny button and I with a little star and I clicked it I hadn't noticed it before it's new told me she was likely a border collie which she is so it's just I just find it so interesting right because nobody trained me or told me what this update was going to involve and here I'm already experiencing it and 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 yeah. and appreciating
1: it there is though that concept that you understand of this synchronization among all your devices. Yes. So that's that literacy piece. That's right. That's Some people have trouble wrapping their head around that. And what do you mean? Same with an email, for example, how it's all really just living in one place and these devices are windows to see your email. That's a conversation that I have regularly with my mother and my mother-in-law. Yeah. It's never quite
0: could not teach my dad the concept of email folders to save my life. He was just like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it's like, like you have a physical folder, but it's on your computer. Yeah. And you're putting the email there in case you need it again. Huh? He just, it just did not translate. So what do you do in that case where you've got users and, and, you know, on that literacy front, some people are further along in their understanding, in their, in their previous experience, right? Or yeah. ability to adapt. How do you design for that?
1: Well, this is where I, I, turn to the education community and the training community. I say, you know, that this is where where we need to provide that ah. conceptual understanding because you can't rely on a, a user interface to be able to fill in the blanks there. Right. That's really uh,
0: so. So, what are you? So, but from a design perspective, are you, you're not. It doesn't sound like you're designing, unless I'm misinterpreting your answer to the lowest common denominator so to speak right you're you're like if if you're saying okay here's sort of our average user here's our super user and here's somebody like our parents you know who's struggling with x who are you designing to
1: that's right so an ideal design is going to cross the chasm and and really service a variety of i would say proficiency levels but you have to be careful with the endpoints right because you don't too much information that's provided as long if, if it's provided in a way that's subtle so it gets out of the way of the proficient user that's fine but then it makes it harder for the neophyte to be able to potentially even access or engage with that so there are some boundaries that you need to to put around realistically this isn't a consumer population you really have it's, it's such a breadth and oh, so yeah. you think about a banking machine or a kiosk for if you're showing up at a, a Well, while you're traveling at some tourist attraction, those are typically designed to the lowest carbon denominator. They're designed as a walk-up and use experience. Anything that you're talking about in the workplace, you're going to be expecting a level of proficiency. You're going to want to support more efficient and productive use of the tool. And so you don't want to sacrifice that for those who really are having conceptual trouble understanding the nature of the solution that they're interacting with.
0: So some of what you you were just discussing makes me think of what I've called elastic design. So it's it's something that I, you know, I'm a former school teacher going a really, going back a very, very long time ago before I even first met you. And, you know, it was this idea that you, you've got a range of kids. I remember when I, I taught for a whole two years and it was grade eight, I had gifted kids in my French immersion class. And then I would do core French and I had some kids that had behavioral and learning identifications and, and so it was really around how do I develop lesson plans to to meet the the general needs of, of most and then have created opportunities and ways like stretch opportunities for the kids that needed more that that finished earlier or wanted to, to be challenged in a different way. And ways to help meet the needs of, of the, the kids that were struggling a bit that that needed more time like you know or needed it broken down more carefully. And so when you bring that into the workplace, I think the same thing is just as important, right? Is is how do you create learning experiences on the job experiences that are elastic and 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 consider that there's a wide range of needs.
1: Yeah, that that makes a ton of sense to me. absolutely. So just supplementary modules or components. and and this is where leaving people in control allows them to engage in the level of interest, yeah.
0: And it sounds like a lot of work. And yet I think if if you're intentional about it upfront and in either you know, when you're creating that strategy that I think you can you can figure out ways to to decomplexify, right? to to make to make it simple enough that you are getting at those, those different needs overall.
1: That's right. And when, when you take the time up front, invest the time to gather feedback early, yeah. very early, just at the concept stage, right. this is where you'll learn, but you, you, you don't want to over invest, obviously. So this is where you kind of learn where the material gaps are in each kind of phase of learning and understanding and yeah. where that's time.
0: Yeah, so fascinating. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I have to tell you, because I I knew when I asked you on, you're not, you know, the typical guest profile. And But I hope listeners that you really enjoyed hearing from Paul, because this is a, you know, a very interesting, important domain. And I think there's a lot of principles that we can kind of, you know, bring over to our world as as reminders, as refreshers on what's important to do and how to create the best possible design. So, Paul, before we we wrap up, I have I have one more question for you. And I would say, you know, what would you attribute to your fascination with with the human experience, with with this idea of empathy and human centered design?
1: It's an interesting question, and and I don't want to reflect too deeply, but I've I've always been a questioner of the value. I think I was quoted in high school by my peers as, as the guy who always says, but what's the point? So before you just step forward, it's about really understanding what you're trying to achieve and still being goal oriented. Mm -hmm. And then as well with the, the training that I got through the human factor side, which is an industrial engineering, again, a very systems oriented, uh, approach it's appreciating the human is an extremely material Component of yeah. the overall system. and Let's not just focus on all of this mechanical, electronic kind of system that we're, what solution that we're poured together, but really appreciating the human as part of that loop. And so it just, it seemed like a no brainer.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And I think I just, I just found the quote for our interview today, which is, What's the point by Paula Eisen? Because, you know, uh, it, I think that right there, if 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 listeners get one thing only, it's it's consider when you're when you're doing strategy, designing things, putting them out in the world, it's like consider at every point what's the point. Remember, you know, really refining my instructional design skills. When I was doing that training and really tomorrow I'm I'm working with people in my my program, the Talent Trust, and, and there's at least three people that need to roll out monthly leadership trainings and and they're struggling with, you know, how long it takes to create the content and you know, how do we kind of speed this up and still make it really meaningful. So we're gonna be, I'm gonna be sharing some ways to do that. But I but I remember in that instructional design program in my practice after was for every sort of objective, learning objective that you have, you're creating an experience around it. You then step back and say, okay, what's the point here? Does this actually get them to that objective? Is it actually, you know, serving a purpose or is it just kind of fluffy? We're just sharing our thoughts or, you know what I mean? Spending half an hour on introductions, like why, like what is the point? And if you're not really sure, then yeah. that's probably a clue to to switch things up to remove
1: something and you're nodding like crazy. So, Or something that I'm responding to because my boss suggested I should do this or because my client is asking for it. I- yeah. Managed to have some hard conversations with clients over the years. Say, you hired me to do this. But I tell you, you're not going to get the outcome that you're hoping for. So let's think about the outcome that you want and try and find a better way. Bet.
0: Well, and it's the same thing with meetings. You know, we have this meeting heavy culture with every single client I work yeah. with. And I know you're laughing, right? It's the same Like, And yet so many meetings are unnecessary. I think we need to to... Step back often and say what What is the point? Like we need to get very clear on what everybody's there for, what their goals, and what we want to have walking out of it, and and then push ourselves to do it in a shorter time frame than what we we might have otherwise just booked because the default is one hour, right?
1: Well, you were right as you advised me. The turn really has
0: gone. <laughs> That's why I know. I know. Yeah. Well, maybe you'll have to come back and we can continue the conversation because there's so much goodness here. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. It,
1: I'm anytime and thank you for for having me and taking the time to do this it's been my a pleasure lot of
0: thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in if you enjoyed the show please share it with your colleagues Better yet, head over to iTunes and let us know. When you subscribe and leave me a five-star review, not only do I glow from within, but more people will learn about the show and why they should listen. Until next time, keep telling the talent management truth.